be spirit-filled in preaching the Word, but that we would be spirit-filled listeners tonight, and that our hearts uh, would be yielded, our minds would be open and alert. I pray that you would help to guide and direct our thoughts as we come to your Word, bring illumination to our hearts of the truth, and help us to fully understand it, and uh, guide and direct us, give us grace as we study its pages, uh, and uh, Lord, help us in the areas that uh, we may struggle with in areas that we maybe uh, try to grasp the understanding of but struggle with. I pray that you would help us to have clear understanding of it and then to apply the truths that we learn uh, to our hearts and to our lives. May we learn from uh, the things that you have to share with us tonight from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 14. And uh, we have been through two services already, two uh, teaching times on the first part of chapter 14, and we will be tonight and one other Wednesday night <coughs> uh, on uh, chapter 14. After that, things will pick up a little bit in this pace, but chapter 14 has been um, an awful lot to deal with, and uh, we needed to get through some of the things um, that were very necessary for us to understand some of the things. In, uh, in chapter uh, 14, as we got to verse number 6, from verses 6 through 11 last week, uh, we started on that, and uh, we found that there are three um, angelic messengers that are sent, and uh, I want to pick up reading there in, chap- in verse number 6, we're going to read down, and uh, then we'll, we'll give just a quick, in, kind of a running start into uh, where we left off last, last week, and then jump into the lesson tonight. In verse number 6 of chapter 14, the Bible says, And I saw another angel. This, of course, this is uh, uh, John speaking. He says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them uh, that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give, him, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the wa- uh, fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and we shall be and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest uh, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And these are the, some of the messages that are brought by these three angels. Uh, we're dealing here with the uh, seven vials that are going to be the seven vile judgments. And uh, in the midst of this, we have these three angels that come, and they uh, pronounce some things. Uh, last week, we studied about the first angel and how um, he was in the midst of heaven, and he brings glory to God. He speaks about the, the everlasting gospel, and we spent some time on that last Wednesday night. And I love the idea of the everlasting gospel, uh, that it's, uh, it's always been, it always will be. The gospel does not change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, and uh, it has everlasting effects. Uh, you know, the fruit of the gospel is, is eternal fruit. It's everlasting fruit. 
And when a person trusts Christ as their Savior, uh, our Bible teaches us very, very clearly that they are eternally secure. Uh, Christ is the surety. He's the, the guarantor of our salvation, if you will. He's the one who seals us um, uh, and makes sure that we, uh, our, our salvation, if, and we've got to think of it this way, our salvation was not up to us anyway. Uh, we, had to, we had to make a choice. We had to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we couldn't save ourselves. He's the one that had to save us. And if he says that he's going to keep us saved, that we can't be plucked out of his hand, if he talks about the fact that he is the surety uh, of our redemption, uh, then we have to take him at his word. If we have faith enough to trust him for salvation, then we ought to have faith enough to trust him for eternal security too. And uh, once we're saved, uh, we, uh, we are always saved. And then uh, we kind of finished up last week, in uh, verse number 7, that talks about uh, the message that the first angel is giving after they spend a little bit of time praising God and giving thanks to God for some things. In verse 7, the message that he brings is this, that they need to fear God, they need to give glory to God, they, uh, that the hour of His judgment is come. And so from this point forward, we're going to see, uh, and as we see the second angel especially, we're going to see some things uh, regarding the wrath of God that's coming, His judgment. And then that they are to worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Very, very important that the angel express uh, not just worship God, but that he, they were to worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Because understand at this time, there is an Antichrist on the scene. And there are people that are deceived into thinking that He is God. And they worship Him as a God. Uh, I don't believe they believe in Him as the one true God as much as but they do believe in Him as a God, and they worship Him as such. And so it's important that the angels specify uh, the, the God that they're uh, to serve. I was listening to a preacher this past week, and uh, he was taught, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago, it was a week and a half ago, um, and uh, he, was, he was speaking of the fact that when we share the gospel today, uh, in the day that we live, we need to be very, very clear in how we speak and the things that we need to give some very careful thought into the terminology and the things that we uh, say in order to bring somebody to Christ uh, and, and help them realize their need of a Savior. Uh, and he gave an illustration that I'd never really given a whole lot of thought to. And the illustration was this. He said, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, if you said that people needed to put their faith in God, everybody knew who you were talking about. But he said the, 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 the confusion in the world over all the different gods that can be worshipped now is such that we can't just say you need to believe in God. Uh, you, you start talking to a Jehovah's Witness, and they'll talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll talk about Jehovah. But they don't talk about Him, the same one that we're talking about. They're not talking about the one in the Bible, the one that the Bible depicts. Uh, even when you get to the Mormons, even though they believe in Jesus Christ and God, uh, they don't believe that uh, it's the same one that is taught in Scripture. And, and there comes some confusion with people who, who don't know Scripture. If you're sharing the gospel with them, they don't know Scripture. There's, there's confusion there if we use terminology and we don't explain what we mean by that. And so I would encourage us in this, as we share the gospel... As we talk to people about the Lord, it's fine to use the words that God gives us, that He leads us to say the things we ought to say. But when it comes down to it, we need to come to Scripture 
It's a wonderful thing if you can have a Bible in your hand and actually show the people from Scripture. And when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be able to give enough Scripture that they know which one we're talking about. We're not talking about the same one that the Jehovah's Witnesses talk about or the Mormons talk about. We're talking about the God of the Bible. And uh, so we need to, it's something that years ago people didn't have to be as careful about that because there was agreement almost worldwide and universal over who God was. It's just been in the last hundred years or so that Satan has so confused the minds of men and brought deceit, uh, deception in their minds to believe in other, other gods that are out here. And it is the setting of the stage. Uh, lest we sit here and say, well, how did that happen? It is uh, the setting of the stage for these end-time events. Because the confusion and the deception that's going to be going on during this time uh, has to be in place. It's not something... I, I tell my kids all the time as they were growing up, or I would talk to them often about this, as they were growing up, and they would do something as, you know, they get into their preteen years, maybe early teen years, and they do something very immature for their age. You all know what I'm talking about. Everybody's been there. We used to do that when we were that age. And I, I would correct them on it. I would say, you need, to, you need to work on this and your character. You need to deal with this. And they were like, I will when I grow up. And I, I would always make this statement. You don't just jump out of bed when you turn 18 and say, I'm an adult. <laughs> you become an adult. It's a process. And this, this idea of these end-time events, some of the things we're going to read about here in just a moment and talk about, um, are not things that just suddenly happen. When the rapture takes place and, and within just two or three years everything changes. The world is going to be trending that direction. Um, the, the old uh, story that uh, someone told or came up with years ago, about putting a frog in a cold pan of water and then setting it on the stove and slowly turning up the water, the frog will never know the difference. And we're living in a world that is much like that. And the sad thing is, that the Bible tells us as Christians that we're to walk circumspectly, meaning we're not to be deceived by these things. And you may say, well, how do I keep from being deceived? We're in the world. We're, we're, we're this flow of, of degrading and going uh, down this moral, uh, morally depraved road that the world seems to be following, how do we keep from doing that? Well, we, we, we throw the anchor of our life out and we grab a hold of a rock that doesn't move. And so we study the pages of this book and it doesn't, it doesn't change. And in order for us to not drift, separated from the world, but drift along with the world, we can't put our eyes on what the world is doing as our gauge of how we're doing. We can't say, well, I'm better than the world, so I must be a good Christian. We've got to come back and say, am I living what the Bible says? This is our, this is our measuring stick. This is our yardstick. This is what we measure the life by. Uh, but understand this, and don't be, uh, it's okay to be concerned about it. It's okay to pray about it. But don't be worried about it. Don't be anxious over it. The world is going to wax worse and worse. The Bible tells us that. The world's going to get to a place where uh, when these times happen and the, and the rapture takes place and the Antichrist comes on the scene, uh, these things are going to, it's going to be easy for the world to turn into a one world government. It's going to be easy for the world to have a universal religion and have one religion and worship the beast. Uh, it's going to be simple for those things to happen because the world is going to be well groomed and primed for that. And we're going to see some of that. In fact, we're seeing some of that already in the day that we live. As we get to the end of verse number 7, 
uh, we find that this angel gives this message. There's uh, a message of, of charging and challenging uh, God's people. But in the midst of it, he also gives a warning there that the wrath of God, uh, the judgment of God is now come and uh, that they need, to, they need to be prepared for it. If they thought the tribulation had been bad up to this point, they hadn't seen anything yet. Uh, these, these things that God's getting ready to do, and we're going to see it here with angel number two, uh, are, are, are just uh, beyond what our minds, I think, could even comprehend. I really do believe that. Let's look a little bit more carefully. As we get to verse number eight, the Bible says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations of the wine uh, a drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, anytime we find the word idol or uh, fornication uh, in uh, prophetic settings, it is not usually dealing uh, unless it specifically speaks in the context of it being a literal uh, depravity of the moral standard of a man uh, to to lead them into fornication, the acts of fornication. Oftentimes, when it's spoken of in prophecy, and I believe this is one of those times, it is dealing with uh, the uh, idolatry of man. Uh, the fact that they have fornicated themselves away from the idea of God, the worship of God. Uh, some people may disagree with me on that, on this particular verse. I believe within the context of it that the usage of this, and we certainly know that it's used other times to speak of that, uh, because God speaks of it very clearly, especially when He's dealing with Israel, uh, which a lot of what he's doing here is dealing with Israel. Uh, I believe this is dealing more not so much with the moral depravity of the world, because that was already there, uh, but it says that he makes all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the wrath that God pours out is for the fornication that Babylon the Great is causing all of the world uh, to drink of and to be a part of. And uh, I, I, I believe very strongly... That, that is dealing with uh, an idolatrous nation. Now, now keep this in mind. It, it's one thing to worship another god besides God. It's another thing entirely and far worse to worship an anti-Christ. One that is constantly against the things of God. Uh, you know, an idol is, is nothing. But the Antichrist is a real person, and there is real power behind him. And the people that worship him, notice this, if, if you'll take time to read the first part of chapter 14 again, they chose willingly to worship him. They chose willingly to take the mark of the beast, or uh, his name, or the number of his name. They, they chose that. This is not something where men were forced to, even though there certainly is pressure and there's persecution for those that don't do it. Uh, these people are choosing willingly, and it is an act of worship, not an act of submission. They are enamored by this, this Antichrist, this beast that has come out of the uh, sea, and the beast that has come out of the land. They are enamored by them, and they are amazed by them, and they worship them uh, because of their choice. Now, Babylon is mentioned here, prophetically. Babylon, of course, was a literal city that began all the way back uh, after the flood in the times of uh, Nimrod was perhaps the great ruler of Babel, uh, the early uh, Babylon uh, city uh, that was there. And uh, they built the Tower of Babel there. You remember that and the confusion of the tongues. And that's where the city of Babylon got its start. It's an ancient city, very large city. 
uh, it came to power, uh, its greatest power, uh, during the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, and, uh, in fact, it's interesting how many times um, that Rome is uh, indicated uh, as Babylon, or called Babylon even. Uh, so, it, it's important for us to understand that this uh, mention of Babylon in verse number 8, I very strongly believe, is dealing with, and when we look at, uh, it speaks of the fact that she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Uh, this wrath that's going to be poured out. She's causing all these folks to be judged because of the depraved nature of uh, ancient Rome. Ancient Rome, by far, above any other nation in the world that's ever existed, any other empire in the world that's ever existed, by far, Rome was more into idolatry and worshiping idols and the depravity, the moral depravity of man was uh, way beyond way beyond what we see even here in the United States of America. We think our country is in a mess. It's nothing in comparison to what Rome was uh, during their times. And it reached its heyday during the time of Christ. It was a large city. It was uh, the by far the biggest city that dealt with idolatry. And this, uh, what the prophetic word here that is used, this fornication that she causes uh, all of the folks in the earth. There's, there's some ties also not only with ancient Rome as, an, as a nation uh, and the, the, the regions around that, but the religious uh, entity that has come out of that, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the Vatican, the Pope, all of that, uh, was tainted by the immorality of the Roman Empire. They very strongly believed in a church-state marriage. And uh, you're going to see in this end time, as we get to this, uh, as we study some of the other chapters, more and more you'll see more evidence that when it's mentioning Babylon, it is speaking of the Roman Empire and sometimes very, very specifically about the religious organization from the Roman Empire, which would be the modern-day Roman Catholic Church and the old-time Roman Catholic Church. Um, and the Bible says, uh, takes, uh, we'll find in future chapters um, uh, some more about this. But uh, if, if you understand that the, uh, the Catholic men, uh, Church and the, the Catholic beliefs are very superstitious, uh, they have practices that are not found in Scripture, uh, and they entice millions and millions of people all around the world. You can't go hardly to any country and not find, and not find somebody that's been touched by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I was down in Haiti uh, a while back on a missions trip. And everywhere we went, we went to, to several areas on the island and spent a, a few days at each place. And uh, we went to Cape Haitian, which is a, a pretty well-known uh, city there, a large city. They have about a million and a half people there. And uh, everywhere you went, uh, there were businesses, there were buildings, there were cars, there were buses. Um, and uh, they, they would have uh, Emmanuel and Jesus and... Um, Christo, all written all over everything. I mean, their business names would have names of Christ or references to, to, the, to, to God in them. Jehovah, uh, all, I mean, everywhere you looked. It was on vehicles, it was on buildings. And I asked a couple of the missionaries, we, there, were over, there were over 700 missionaries down there in Haiti on an island. And they're barely scratching the surface of evangelizing this island. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, and, and, and I won't go into all those things. But I was talking to one of the missionaries that I was down there to visit, 
And I said, what is it with all this? I mean, it, their, their national religion is voodoo. I mean, they worship the devil. They, they have it in their constitution. A little over a hundred years ago, they dedicated their, their country to, to Satan and had a, had a, had a, a human sacrifice to do it. And um, I asked him, I said, why is there so much reference to Christ and uh, Emmanuel and all this? And here's what he, he, here's what he told me. He said, when the Roman Catholics came to the island to evangelize them, they saw the voodoo practices. And in order to get to, to, to reach the people, they mixed voodoo and Roman Catholicism together. And, and to, the, to, the, to the Creole people, unless they've been reached by a missionary who knows better and teaches them the Word of God, there's no difference between them. And you'll find this as you go. I went to El Salvador on another uh, mission trip a, a while back, and you see very similar things down there. Uh, very strong uh, Catholic outreaches. Uh, you go down into a lot of the Central and South America countries, many of them reached by the Catholic Church. And uh, so again, uh, there's, there's a lot of superstition, there's a lot of practices uh, that are involved, and they've uh, incorporated them over the years. Uh, the church has made, uh, when I say the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church has made uh, different practices during the Inquisition time, during the, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. There were uh, a lot of things that they did in order to gain power, in order to gain wealth, in order to, uh, in order to oppress the people. Um, they they uh, viciously, viciously persecuted. Uh, take time to read some of the Inquisition uh, stories. Uh, if you did not agree and come into line with the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, they, they tortured people to death. And I'm not talking about just men. I'm talking about women and children, too. Unbelievable, the, the, acts, the acts of atrocity that took place. Their hunger and their thirst for power. And, and so I believe, again, this is going to be, uh, quickly, is going to be uh, instituted as the, the, the foundation, if you will, uh, for the, the beast from the land, the, the, the religious uh, leader that's controlled by Satan. Uh, and I think he's going to utilize that to unify the world under one religion. And I think that, that we're already seeing some, uh, some trends uh, coming out of the Vatican and some of the new things, new ideas of the new Pope uh, that they've had now for a few years, several years, uh, things that he's changing and the church is changing and, and just kind of setting things in motion and getting them in line. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it here in chapter 14 yet, but I wanted to get that out there and kind of lay a foundation for it because as we go through the rest of these chapters, more and more you're going to see evidences that point back to Rome and the Roman Catholic Church and the old ancient Roman Empire that's going to rise again. Uh, remember this, in Daniel's dream there were four empires. And the, the stone that came uh, rolling and that, that struck the feet and shattered the image. Uh, each of the four empires were to fall and Christ was to be the reason of their fall. Only three of them have fallen so far. Rome has never been conquered. It, it deteriorated internally. And, but going to, there's going to be a resurrection of the Roman Empire, and there's going to be one final battle where Christ is going to destroy them and overcome them. And again, we're going to see that uh, as we go through Revelation more and more. There'll be more evidences of that. But I wanted to lay that foundation, get that, that direction of thinking as we come through this, so that as we get to other portions of Scripture going through, 
it'll be easier to refer back to and say that that makes sense. That lines up. You're, that that seems to be the case. So I wanted to put that out there. Now uh, I want us to look at a couple things here. Um, this third angel comes on the scene, and uh, let's begin reading in verse number eleven. Or I'm sorry, verse number um, nine is where the third angel starts. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, remember the beast had an image built and said every man had to worship it. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The word receive here does not give the indication that they were forced to take it, but that they willingly chose to take it. Because obviously there are some that will reject it, aren't there? There is a choice there. Now, the consequences of that choice are very dire. They're, 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 they're tremendous. Uh, but you do have a choice during this time, or the folks that are there. So he says with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, this is the same type of verbiage that he used in verse number 8 when he talked about Babylon who caused all nations to drink of the wine of her fornication, uh, uh, the wrath of her fornication. And then we see in verse number 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Those that are going through this this worshiping of the beast are getting ready to to taste of the wine and not just taste it, but to drink of it. They're going to be uh, fully fully, uh, exposed to it. The wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, notice this, without mixture, into the cup of His indignation. I'm going to stop there for a minute. We're going to, we'll, we'll read the rest of the verse here in just a moment. But let me make a couple comments about this. Uh, the, uh, the wine of the wrath of God, the Bible says here, is getting ready to be poured out on these folks, that have, the ones that have willingly chosen to worship the beast in the image. And it says here that it is without mixture. All of the mercy that God has had through the centuries and the millennia that He has extended to man will finally come to one full fruition. And the wrath that He pours out here in verse number 10 is without any mercy. There is no dilution of it. The anger, the white-hot judgment of God, all this that He has reserved and held Himself back from and extended mercy to man for thousands of years is going to come full circle and He's going to pour it all out. And He is not going to hold back. There's going to be no mixture to the wrath. There's going to be, it's not going to be God's wrath tempered with mercy. If you remember the story of David, when he numbered Israel, he did something that God had told him not to do. He told all of the, the folks in Israel, look, you don't number Israel. Uh, and by that, it meant that he, he went through and he saw uh, how many soldiers he had, how many men that could fight that he had. He wanted to know how strong Israel was, and that was the purpose of the numbering. And God didn't want Israel to do that. Anybody know why He didn't want Him to do that? Israel to do that? They wanted, God wanted them to depend on what? They wanted, him to, they wanted Israel to put their faith in Him for their defense, not their numbers. The story of Gideon is a wonderful, wonderful picture of that. Uh, he, he worked it so that they could not take the glory for the battle. Uh, 
the, the story of Jericho, another wonderful illustration. God over and over and over again delivers the nation of Israel. David comes on the scene and he numbers Israel. And God comes to him and he brings judgment on him. And he said, you've got three choices. You can be run overrun for three years. You can be brought into captivity for three years and be uh, under subjection. Or he said, you can be uh, overrun, or, I'm sorry, three years of pestilence in the land. He said, you can be overrun by your enemies for three months. Or he said, you can have three days of the, of the judgment of God upon you. And David prayed and he said, Lord, I'll take the three days of your judgment on us. He said, here's why. He said, because I know you're a God of mercy. And God starts the judgment. He slays 70,000 men in Israel by the angel of the Lord. This is something that the nation of Israel, and I don't know if we... y'all ever get excited when you read Scripture and you see that Israel could see the angel of the Lord. They could see the slaughter that was going on because David goes up on Mount Moriah and, and, and God says, he sees the angel of the Lord with his sword outstretched over Jerusalem. He, David sees this. And he prays to God and God says, it is enough, stop. He stopped his judgment because David understood God was a God of mercy. And in, in his wrath, he showed mercy. I think we could go through Scripture and find that over and over and over again, that when God gives wrath, He gives mercy. When God brings punishment, when He brings chastening, He gives mercy. But He does not do it here. When this wrath comes, there is no mercy. It is without mixture. And it is poured into the cup of His indignation. And if you can imagine this, a holy God who absolutely abhors sin, detests it. The wrath that is kindled on the sin of man to be poured out without mercy, this is the kind of judgment that's coming to these people. I don't know if we can fully comprehend that. But it is without mixture. And this angel says, it's coming. Notice what he says here about it, and he gives some things that will characterize their, 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 uh, the, the wrath that's being poured out. The Bible says, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now, fire and brimstone has been used in Scripture all the way back into Genesis as part of God's judgment from time to time. The difference between the previous mentions of fire and brimstone as a judging tool in God's hand in the, in the previous passages of Scripture, before we get to Revelation, is that they were temporary. This fire and brimstone has no end. And the Bible says that they are tormented with the fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. They're, they're looking on these creatures of absolute holiness in Christ Himself. Could you imagine being in this in this group of people who are suffering this judgment from God, and, and not only be going through the torment, to be in the presence of absolute innocence, I think would be so much more overwhelming to the heart and deflating to the, to the heart. <clears throat> and look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascended up for how long? Forever and ever. It does not end. 
number of years ago, and I'll end with this and we'll pick up here next next week. And I only made it about halfway through the notes tonight. I, a number of years ago, my, my father, when he was alive, had to go into, sur- into the hospital for some surgery on a carotid artery that was clogged. It was pretty serious. Uh, the plaque had already separated. They were worried about a massive stroke on the table. And our family gathered. We called people in and, and had them praying. And we were, our family was gathered there in the waiting room. And before he went into surgery, we had prayer with him. We all held hands around him, prayed with him. And then we went and sat in the, in the waiting room. And God, you know, as He often does, uh, gave great strength and great grace during that time. And, and, of course, brought my dad through it. And we were thankful and grateful for that. But uh, there was a peace there. And we weren't sitting there sobbing and crying and, and biting our nails. We were just sitting there simply waiting for the doctor to give us the report. Because we knew that whatever the outcome was, God was in control of it. I remember sitting there that day, and there was a a Reader's Digest sitting on the table next to me. And I don't know about you, but I like to read the little little funny things they put in there, the little quotes and things. I don't read Reader's Digest hardly ever. But when I get a hold of one, I devour it because I love all those little anecdotes and little phrases and comments in there. I hardly ever read any of the stories that are in there. I just look for those little quotes and things in there. I was sitting there that day, I had time to kill, and I didn't have anything else. There was nothing else on the table to read, and I picked it up and was skimming through it. And I came across a story uh, of some geologists down in South America. And uh, the title captured my attention. And so I started reading and began to read the, the story. And um, it was uh, some geologists that were studying a dormant volcano. And there had been some unusual seismic activity there in the area, and they thought, well, this is a great opportunity. We can go put our instruments in here, and we can start studying what leads up to an eruption. And so they had taken up on the, the, the side of the, the mountain. They had put a, a base station, and then um, they had lowered some men down into the crater, and they put some instrumentation down in the, in the center of the volcano. There were two geologists that were uh, working that day, and they went up the hill in, early in the morning, and they could only spend a little bit of time. They had masks because of the corrosiveness of the area, that even their masks would only protect them for so long, and oxygen. So they went over the cliff, and they were checking the readings on their instrumentation and recalibrating some things. While they were in the crater, the volcano erupted. And in the story, it's a true story, in the story, the, the man who wrote the, uh, that authored it, After he had disclosed the plot of the story and what had happened, uh, he made this statement. He said, mercifully, for those two men, he said, mercifully, it was over in an instant. And I sat there. And I thought, was it? Because I don't have any indication from the story that these two men were saved. When we look at this passage in Revelation, if there is anything that should motivate you and I to share the gospel with someone, it ought to be the knowledge that this stuff is for eternity. There is no end to it. And there is no mercy. You say, well, that's not fair. Oh, absolutely. God has given ample mercy an ample opportunity. And man has rejected, and at the point that he brings this judgment on this group of people, they have rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected again 
And God is certainly just in His judgment. For Him to have no mercy at all and to pour out His indignation on these people, He is right to do that. And even if we didn't think He was, He would still be right to do it because He's God. He's a just God. He has extended mercy. He has gone above and beyond what any of us would have ever done in the same position by sending His only Son to die on a cross in our place simply to be able to show us mercy. Simply to be able to extend that to man. And if we've rejected it and rejected it and rejected it, then we are certainly deserving of this. I know it's not fun to talk about the, the fire and the brimstone. It's not fun to talk about the torture and the, the, the judgment of God. The, man, the men that, and women that are going to be going through this torment for eternity. I know it's not pleasant. But it is important that we understand this. God is certainly a merciful God. He shows that every day. I love what Miss Linda said earlier, and it was so fitting for the message tonight. Thankful for His mercy. It is new every morning. He extends it to us every day. By the way, He doesn't just extend it to you and I every day. Look at the depraved men and women around our world that do not know Him as their Savior. They have not had their lives transformed by the renewing of their minds. They rebel against Him. They, they blaspheme Him. They deny Him. And yet, He still stays His hand of judgment. So don't get to the place in Revelation where He talks about this and say He's been unfair. Because He has extended mercy day in, and day out for thousands of years. And when this time comes, man has had their chance. And it's done. The wine of the wrath will be poured into the cup of his indignation without mixture. There won't be any mercy shown. And this is what will take place in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. If we thought the first part was bad, the second part is far beyond whatever you and I could ever imagine as far as what men are going to have to go through. A couple of things I think that would be a help to us. I wish we could have gotten to the other part of the notes because there was a charge and a challenge in there for us today. We'll get to it next Wednesday. But something I think we could leave with us tonight is this. Could we live day in and day out with eternity on our hearts and on our minds. We live day by day and for this present time in this present world, oftentimes without giving any thought to eternity. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, the work that Christ has given us to do, He's promised to empower us and, and, and give us the strength to do it. He's told us that we're to study so that we can become workmen that need not to be ashamed. He's commanded us and charged us to be diligent, 
to the task at hand. Can we live day by day with that view and that in view? To take advantage of every opportunity that Christ gives us as we cross paths with people to share the gospel with them. Because there is coming a day. It's not today, but there is coming a day where God's mercy will be no more. And we need to live with that and understand that. By the way, uh, His mercy will be no more only for those that reject Him. Aren't you glad His mercy will be eternal for those that have trusted Him? And I thank the Lord for that. Let's just stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You would allow us to have our hearts stirred. Lord, may we, may we understand and recognize the reality of this, the importance of this. Lord, so often we just go through life day in and day out sometimes. We become so encumbered by the affairs of this life that we 